0: That spring he holed up in the Smokies, in a tired resort hotel by the asylum, so he could be closer to her. A bout of pneumonia over Christmas had provoked a flare-up of his TB, and he was still recovering. The mountain air was supposed to help. Days he wrote in his bathrobe, drinking Coca-Cola to keep himself going, holding off on the gin till nightfall, a small point of pride, sipping on the dark veranda as couples strolled among the fireflies rising from the golf course. Outside of town, Highland Hospital crowned the Ridgeline, a spired gothic palace in the clouds, worthy of a bewitched princess. He couldn't afford it, as he couldn't afford the other private clinics they'd tried, but he pleaded poverty and hashed out a discount with the trustees, begging the money from his agent, an onerous form of credit, borrowing against stories he'd yet to imagine.
1: Stuart O'Nan is the author of novels that include Snow Angels, A Prayer for the Dying, The Night Country, Last Night at the Lobster, and Songs for the Missing. His new novel is West of Sunset. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Thanks, Rick. This is a very daring and fully successful feat of the imagination. And I guess it's not a big leap for you to put yourself in the mind of a writer, is it? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, but but in a, a much better writer than I will ever be, Mr. F. Scott Fitzgerald, and to jump uh, to 1937 and to Los Angeles. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I really don't know L.A. And to go back in time was was just a, a great a great pleasure. Uh,
1: I love the tone that you find for this book. It's elegiac and gentle and beautiful uh and for example just i love this idea of that he's borrowing against stories he'd yet to imagine that idea of fitzgerald and of a writer's life is is really compelling because we think of him as this icon and we think of the jazz age stories and all the glamour but that's not the part of his life you're writing about is it
0: no this is the fitzgerald after the crack up um he's he's at absolute zero. I mean he's Zelda's off in the hospital, his daughter's off at boarding school, and he's thirteen thousand dollars in debt to his agent. And he has to somehow pull himself out of it and he he does it the only way that he knows how, which is to write
1: as you were researching the story, this is an amazing feat of writing because this is like uh, navigating this very complicated, maze of reality uh, you're working with somebody whose life is well known, well documented There's he's surrounded by famous people all the time it must have been a lot of fun for you to work with this great cast.
0: Oh, it was an amazing, amazing cast to work with. And this part of his life isn't really known too, too much. We know it through the memoirs of Sheila Graham, his girlfriend at the time. But the great thing about those memoirs is that they contradict one another the <laughs> whole time. So there's lots of gaps and lots of openings there. But when he's out at the Garden of Olive there, he's living with people like Dorothy Parker and Alan Campbell, just an amazing couple. Uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart and Mayo Methot, another, you know, fighting couple and, and of raging alcoholics, Robert Benchley, Ogden Nash, S.J. Perelman, uh, Donald Ogden Stewart, just, you know, and and the people that come through the Garden of Allah, that's one reason why I wanted to write the book, you know. Stephen King says a book takes you away, and in this book I wanted to take myself and the reader away to the Garden of Allah and see what the parties were like there, see how it was to dance underneath the stars and the palm trees.
1: When you were writing this book, did you have to set up a timeline in advance to make sure you navigated the narrow straits of what you wanted to do and what you knew?
0: Yeah, a, a little bit, certainly for proportion to knowing how much time I wanted to spend on each section of, of Scott's time out there. Um, I, I looked at his letters especially and said, you know, what was on his mind at this particular time? Um, it's, it's a fish-out-of-water story. Right, Mm -hmm. I mean, here he comes into the most successful, glamorous part of American life, Hollywood, during the golden age of the studios, and he's dead broke. Now, when he's staying with people that are already famous and growing richer and richer. Dorothy Parker's already won an Oscar for A Star Is Born. Humphrey Bogart is on the verge of his great, great stardom there. Robert Benchley has won Oscars and now has his own series of films. And here is Scott trying to hang on to his pride as a writer. Um, in the midst of them. So it's not just a fish out of water, it's Chekhov's character in a false position, right? He's trying to show that everything's fine, he's doing great. You know, meanwhile, he can't pay his rent. He has to go hawk his car.
1: You know, one of the things that seems so true, too, is that this captures what so often happens to writers, great writers, who go to Hollywood. They go there with these. Great expectations, which the studios must share to a certain degree, of that they'll be able to duplicate their prose feats and maybe exceed them and have them in this new glamorous format. doesn't always work out that way,
0: does it? It doesn't always, but sometimes it does. I mean, think of Faulkner. Faulkner did it the right way. Faulkner would go out and he'd write a film for Howard Hawks, get paid, go back to Oxford, you know, and write another novel. But that was Faulkner. He was very productive. Scott goes out there hoping to make enough money to pay his debts which he does, hoping to do some good work because he'd been out there twice before and hadn't done good work. And I think he does here. In, in 1937, the first major film that he works on, Three Comrades, it's the only film that he has a credit for, a screen credit for, and that film won its leading lady, Margaret Sullivan, the Best Actress Award. So that's that's not too shabby.
1: No, and that was dialogue he was uh, writing, and he had to fight for it against these media. <laughs>
0: Oh, her people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when you're in Hollywood and you're the writer, you are the bottom dog. It's the exact opposite of writing, sort of what we call literary fiction. You know, when you're sitting by yourself and you are the very last word. Yes, your editor Max Perkins can make some suggestions here and there. Your friend Ernest Hemingway can make some suggestions here and there. But in the end, your sensibility is going to win out every time. You are the last word. We're in Hollywood exact opposite. So I think all writers, and even very successful Hollywood writers like, say, Dorothy Parker, would kind of just rage against the Hollywood structure there. And Scott does a fair amount of that. But he is getting paid. And in the midst of the Depression, to a guy that needs money, he's in the right place. It's so interesting too, To when you think of artistic work, you think of the guy at work in his garret at all hours of the night. You know, working nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> there, he's working nine to five, but he's also getting up early. He's getting mm-hmm. up at five o'clock and he's writing those Pat Hobbish stories, which are really, really good and really, really funny and written in a whole new kind of language for him. They're almost, in a weird way, in a Hemingway line. They're very spare and they're very funny and very cutting. And we forget about Fitzgerald that he's a great, great comic writer. We see him as as a tragedian, and because his life is a tragedy, and Gatsby's a tragedy, and so is um, Tender is the Night, but he is a funny, funny writer.
1: Well, I think, too, one of the th- real pleasures of a book like this is to read this book and see these kind of just spare mentions of stuff that we know to be really great, to be diamonds, and he's kind of just thinking, oh, i got to get this done. <laughs>
0: Because <laughs> he has to get it done. He's, he's got to finish that story so he can drive to the studio. He's a terrible driver, by the way, through L.A. traffic, um, to get to the studio to work on whatever he's working on. Um, and then once that's over, then he can work on The Last Tycoon, um, which, even unfinished, is, is widely seen as perhaps the greatest novel ever written about Hollywood.
1: You know, I... Two, what's so beautiful about this is that kind of elegiac quality, and immediately, uh, one of the first people we meet, even though she's not there, is Zelda. So, and we get to know Zelda from Scott's point of view, and this is one of the things I think you do a great job is capturing his point of view and the complexity of his character
0: himself, and which, of course, is why he was able to create such complicated characters. Thanks. I mean, I'm working through his sensibility, and I'm using some of his vocabulary here and there, but I try to to shy away from the the trap, which is to write the whole book in the first person, you know, me, I, Scott Fitzgerald. Um, So I use that third person, which gives me some authorial stance. I have some distance from the character, but I can go in as much as I want to. I can use the psychic distance to go into the character there. And uh, obviously his relationship with Zelda is the most important thing in his life. Even now, 1937, she's been hospitalized now for almost eight and a half years. Um, It's still the most important thing, probably always will be. And so to have those moments of the two of them together, those intimate moments, I thought was very, very important for the book. And strangely enough, during his time in Hollywood, he did take these trips back east to take these very strange vacations with her. They would spend a week at Myrtle Beach or a week in Miami, and it was supposed to help her acclimate to the outside world in hopes that she could go back to Montgomery. Um, Eventually in 1940, she did go back. She did live with her mother for a little bit there, but it was just too much for, for both herself and her mother to handle. But all through the years that he's in Hollywood, he's going back and they're having these vacations that we know are not going to quite work out the the way that they're supposed to. We have these great hopes for them to work out. We want the two of them to get along, to to be back together like the old times. But, of course, it's a pantomime. Those years are gone. So here he is. He can never kind of move on. No, he's always being dragged back into the past.
1: One of the things I think that you do very well with that closely observed third-person perspective is you manage to create a real sense of narrative tension about events that we, you know, know what happened. We kind of pretty much know what happened to Faulkner. We know when. I mean, it's not maybe super common knowledge, but it's there. And so it's a it must be a challenge for you to write about stuff and and keep. Uh, us
0: invested in wanting to turn the pages like a thriller, which is uh, how it reads. Well, it's an opportunity mm-hmm. in, in that we know or we think we know all these details about Fitzgerald and his time in Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all these other things that I want to write. And the blend of the two, I, I hope it keeps the reader—what's the word for it?—compelled to keep reading because it is the story of this man who's trying to struggle to, to regain himself, you know, against great, great odds there.
1: And I think that uh, that struggle is so interesting because there's a—he's constantly observing all the complicated people around him. He understands their complications, and he's able to turn that vision in on himself. And I think that that's really—you handle that really well. When you're writing this stuff, it must be kind of, I think,
0: like uh, as method acting, and. A little bit, yeah. And and he was so good at it. I mean he I mean in the crack up, he's writing about his own mental breakdown objectively and brilliantly, I think. It was some of our very first confessional writing in American literature, and some of the very best, I think. And all of his friends said, Oh, don't do that, you know, you're giving away too much of yourself, you're being too vulnerable. But he was about being being vulnerable. His characters are very vulnerable, both the men and the women. And I thought I would have to bring that sensibility to him as well, um, to make it work. But at the same time, we're talking about struggle. We're talking about the things that that failed for him. At the same time, it's also a romance. He falls in love. That's it's, it's not merely Fitzgerald in Hollywood. It's Fitzgerald in love.
1: And I think that that's uh, that's beautifully evoked and really well done. One of the the things I think you do um, is to create uh, his. Uh, his paramour, uh, uh, Sheila Graham, you do a great
0: job at creating. I mean, we really like her, and she's kind of, she's pretty tough, isn't oh, she Oh, yeah she 's a tough cookie, yeah yeah, yeah. She, well she's a self-made person mm-hmm. in every way. I mean she's, her real name is not Sheila Graham. She is not who she says she is she's not from where she says she is. Um, and I think Scott needed that. I think Scott needed someone tough to sort of you know, to break him out of his, his depression at times, and she really revives him. I think. I mean, Fitzgerald is in love and regains his love for the world. He regains his love for writing. He regains this this sort of fire, I think. And, and without her, I don't think that happens.
1: As a writer, when you're writing this, I, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about um, creating this the the plot line within what you know and what you don't know and this must have been really i get the sense that you had a lot
0: of fun writing this i did i did again those opportunities i mean
1: mm-hmm.
0: th- there are no scenes in any of the biographies of parties around the pool at the garden of Allah, and like i want to know what it's like to be there i want to be dancing with dorothy parker under the stars and and hear what she has to say about everybody around her i want to be there when hemingway comes to town and shows his film the spanish earth (laughs) over at frederick march's (laughs) mansion there and scott there who's penniless is is being asked by dorothy the president of the anti-nazi league to pony up some money you know do what's right help support you know the republican um Yeah, I mean, so many opportunities there, and the plot line is easy, I think, in this case, because he's got so much going on. He's got so much going on in his life. you know. He has all these responsibilities. And we think of Fitzgerald as this sort of flighty, sometimes drunken, irresponsible guy. It's, that's not true at all. When he was sober, and he was sober much of the time, um, he was a very proper person, a very courtly person. He, he prided himself on the southern manners of his father and his father's father that came from Maryland. Um, And so he took his responsibilities to Zelda and to Scotty uh, very, very seriously. And that's why he was there. He was there to pay for Zelda's hospitalization and to pay for Scotty's, both her education and her future. Because he saw her future as the future that he could have never had. Um, Scotty goes to Ethel Walker's school in Simsbury, Connecticut, and then goes on to Vassar and graduates from there. Um, And after Scott has died, um, she becomes the insider. That Scott could never be. She becomes kind of a power broker uh, inside the Beltway in D.C. You know, moving among you know the very, very you know best people, um, and, and and so there there's this class system that Fitzgerald has always been on the wrong side of. He's always been the the guy outside looking in. He's the Nick Carraway. We think of him as Gatsby, but he's even more Nick Carraway, the guy yeah. that doesn't quite belong. Even Gatsby doesn't quite belong. Um, and, and here is the daughter and all the plans that he's had for her, all the letters that he writes her telling her, you know, this is what you need to do. Now, it all in the end pays off. And part of the, that's the tragedy that he's gone by then. One of the things, too, I think that's so
1: interesting to read this is how modern his sensibility was for for then. I mean, it just it, he could navigate the 21st century, I think, quite
0: easily. He's always interested in the very new, mm-hmm. the absolutely new there. I mean, he's, he's there. During the silent film era, he's there during the early talkies era in 1931 and here he is in thirty-seven in the big studio system. But he's always been fascinated by how American society changes and how people change there. And, and the one thing I think of is that, that line of his, there are no second acts in American lives. Um, that's not really an out-and-out statement. I think that's more of a question because he's always been fascinated by what happens after something happens. after in the crack-up. You know, what, am, what is going to happen next? I've become this man now that I don't quite like. How am I going to become somebody else? There's always that transformation. And that's what makes him such an American writer. I think he's always looking at the transformation of the people and the transformation of the country. In The Last Tycoon, he's fascinated not merely by the Hollywood system, but by air travel. Because it has become this new thing for the masses. And so, then, throughout the book, you know, there, there's all this stuff about airports and being on planes, and in the end, it's going to turn on a plane crash. So I figured this must come from all the planes he was taking back east to see Zelda. There. Those are a lot. Those scenes are a lot of fun to to read. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, they they're fun to write too because I mean, he's a guy whose eyes are always open. He, he's a great character to have because he's always sort of tracking everything, and he feels something about it. One of the things that uh, you were talking about
1: is transformation. I think that's really uh, important in this book. It he, There's a lot of editions of uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and, and he's aware to each one of them, and he's... Uh, very much a man who's enamored of self-revision.
0: Well, he has that famous quote about uh, how it's impossible to write a biography about a writer because if his writer's any good, he's filled with hundreds of different kinds of people. And I think that's true, absolutely <laughs> true here. Um, but in, in this case, he's, he's trying, again, to shed that past you know, and, and become this new person. This is his at least fourth or fifth act, I think. And
1: I, I really like too. You were talking about this courtly sense of self that he has, and I think that made that's one of the things that makes him such a knight, nice, uh, a character that we really like. Because even though he was he was a mean drunk, terrible drunk, he yeah. was. We know that. And we see or don't see some of the scenes he was involved in, but I think that he had this. You do a wonderful job of conveying this complicated sense of chivalry he had his feelings for Zelda, and he really had to embrace and was able to embrace these completely opposing notions of wanting to be there and protect her and hoping that she would
0: come out and then also wishing he just didn't have to deal with her at the same time. Well, there's a great devotion there to Zelda, and and there's some some place in the book, very, very late in it, where he tries to understand what would happen, in fact, if she came out. And Zelda says, you know, will we get divorced? And, And he's never thought of that. You know, he's he's never wanted a divorce from her. Um, I I think she's offered to divorce him at times just to get out of the hospital and away, you know, from his control. But he's he's never seen them as separate. He always sees them as together. Um, So even when Sheila and they're talking about, you know, maybe we're going to have kids or things like that, it's never going to happen. The devotion is still there and will always be there.
1: And you mentioned Sheila, who is a, a lovely character, a, a tough cookie. And the way you approach their relationship, I think you do a really uh, great job of creating a, a convincing and engaging romance. I, and I really like the, the, the way these people uh, get to know one another and fight and come back and forth. I think that seems so uh Uh, right on in terms of the bickering content. Well,
0: thanks. Well, yeah, they they did have this contentious relationship because he was always sort of, you know, falling off the wagon and disappointing her in ways. And he couldn't offer her everything. He couldn't offer her the marriage. He couldn't offer her any kind of financial stability either. Um, And yet it's a romance in in the very best sense. It is love at first sight. And, And what he writes about his character Star in The Last Tycoon and and Star falling in love with Kathleen from a distance, it's exactly what happens with him and Sheila. So if The Last Tycoon is a clef about Fitzgerald's time in Hollywood, then my book, *West of Sunset, is kind of the re-embodiment of of that time and where he gets all the material for The Last Tycoon. So there are all these sort of connections and illusions between the two of them that sort of bind them together. And and just the... uh... The sheer literary density of the novel
1: is, is dizzying.
0: Well, don't scare anybody. Jeez. No,
1: no. But in terms of just pleasure, the literary oh, pleasures of reading it, in and that there's so many allusions, there's so much going on, there's so many great characters on the page, so much of this. I mean, I this really has a feel. Years after he wrote Gatsby, he finally got a chance to practically live it
0: himself. And I think that that's one of the really interesting uh, paradoxes of this book. Well, it's such it's such a glamorous time. Mm-hmm. It's such a glamorous place. I mean, and to be seen through the eyes of of our greatest romantic, you know, it's, it seemed a great great opportunity. Also, the landscape is so magnificent. I mean, I never had any problems coming up with settings because you know the L.A. of 1937 has so many gorgeous settings: Catalina, Malibu. You know, the strangeness of him living in Encino and Edward Everett Horton's little cottage there during the drought. Um, you know, going over the mountains. And, yeah, and and it's also a very lively time politically. Of course, 1937, Spain is is raging, and right now things are not looking good for the Republican Mm -hmm. uh, Spain. And... uh, Again, Hemingway comes to town and he's trying to to drum up support for Spain. Dorothy is the president of the Anti-Nazi League. And, of course, we have this character, Reinecke, who is a fictional character but is based on a real character who was one of the German envoys to Hollywood and basically was an envoy to the studio and acted as a pro forma censor um, for Europe. And basically went to the studio head and says, you know, and said, you can't have this in your film. You need to take this out of your film because it, it paints Hitler and Germany in a bad light.
1: When you're injecting those kind of characters like that, uh, talk about uh, just creating that
0: character because he's an interesting fellow. He is because, and he's this—he's this. He's this uh, what's the word for it? A functionary, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, he comes onto the studio, and he's completely strange. And when he comes on the lot, obviously, you know, Dorothy and Alan have had lots of dealings with him. And Fitzgerald has to be clued into the, the fact that this is happening. Um, and Hemingway is one of the first people to clue him in and says, "Look, you know, you're working on Three Comrades, which is very much an anti-Nazi, anti—you know—German government film at the time." Um, and people are going to be very interested in your work. So be careful and, and protect your work as best you can. And Scott has given this as a kind of, um, what's the word for it, a mission, I think. And he feels completely helpless you know, before Hollywood. And here he is having to sort of, you know, carry Hemingway and Dorothy Parker's hopes for this particular film. Um, and he does, I think. If you look at the final three comrades, it is, I think, a very strongly anti-Nazi film and, and anti, you know, German taking over all of Europe film.
1: And that's one of the interesting aspects of I think almost any historical novel and certainly this one is the way that histories of previous times lead us right back to our own time in so many ways and it's so pleasurable to be reading a a, a book set in in 1937 and just think, wow, there's so much about that that is like what's happening in our world today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... And also the idea of of Fitzgerald being a political creature, we forget that mm-hmm. we 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 kind of divorce him and put him solidly in oh rich and poor and maybe class in America, but he was you know having spent so much time in Europe he was fascinated by European culture, there I mean he is a great scholar of both English and European writing and the political situation he he loved history and that was his, that was second great great love in fact he was going to write a book about medieval Europe. One of his novels was going to be about Philippe, about this knight in medieval Europe, it was going to be based on Hemingway. Um, but we forget that, you know, how how tuned in politically he was, obviously, and, and also Dorothy Parker and Hemingway and Hollywood at that time, um, far more than they are now. I think. And... and- you mentioned that he was interested in
1: history, and that's something that I think is really interesting in this book, the way the past is always present. Hemingway's past, the past, this past that we are reading about is present in our world at the same time. It's really uh, stunning and exciting to,
0: to read about how that um, the past is constantly interwoven for him. Well, of course. I mean, The Last Line of Gatsby, mm-hmm. right? Born ceaselessly back into the past. Um, and at this time in his life, I mean, Fitzgerald is reaching what we would call middle age for that era and is being to look back at, on sort of all the things that have gone wrong and how to, how to redress that situation, how to sort of make the rest of his life sort of work there. Um, so he's, he's in a very difficult situation, which is, and it's a character I like to start with, a character that has a lot going, a lot of plates in the air.
1: This is a man who's uh, who's uh, championing the middle age
0: uh, crisis. I think uh, before it was <laughs> <laughs> well, he 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 hurried his crazes. I think I mean, when 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 Zelda has her first sort of terrible episodes in 1928 and 1929, mm-hmm. there. I mean, he is only. Um, in his early 30s. So things went wrong very early. Things went right very early for him as well. Remember, in 1920, 21, he is the most famous American author and the most highly paid American author. So that great, great success that, that, that took him up to those heights now. He's come crashing down. That's why he's fascinating to us, I think. That's why he and Zelda are so fascinating, because they went from being the couple that were on the cover of the magazines, that everybody knew that were living this very wild public life, and then nine years later, it all comes crashing to the ground. At the same time, of course, that the economy comes crashing to the ground. So we see them as you know being representative of that time. Um, but now, here we are in 37, who's the most famous writer in the world? His buddy, Ernest Hemingway, who's, the most, who's getting paid the most money, Ernest Hemingway there. And there's a little bit of a falling out between them. I mean, they're still friends, I think, but there's a little coolness there because of their changed positions. And Fitzgerald has to understand where he is and that he definitely understands it when he arrives in Hollywood and realizes, you know, he's really done nothing. You know, mm-hmm. he has to prove himself. You know, he has to work hard. And so he takes he takes it very, very seriously. He's trying to learn the business, um, you know, day by day and, and studying it as hard as he possibly can. He's earnest, I think. He cares. And and to me that's that's vital for a character. I, I like
1: that 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 description. Ernest is right. And and that brings me back to Ernest Hemingway. I think you do a very good job with him. You have a very nuanced portrait. It'd be very tempting to to, to demonize to him. To demonize him, color him in big reds and blacks.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in, in, in his private life with, with his friends, he was actually a very playful, nice guy. You know, we have this exterior view of him, of this this persona that he built up for the magazines, for the public. There, you know, the, the big, big guy. But um, luckily, his, his early letters have just been uh, released by the Oxford University Press. They're doing like a seven or eight-volume version of it. And I was lucky enough to read uh, two of the first volumes. And he's just a goofy, wacky kid, you know. It, it's, it's this almost kooky, lovable Hemingway that we never, ever hear of. And that's the guy that, that Scott met, you know, in 1925 in Paris. That's the guy that Scott loves. And and I I don't think that love's lost completely. Uh, Even in 34, 35, they're writing to each other very, very um, warmly. And in 1940, when Hemingway publishes For Whom the Bell Tolls, one of the very first copies, he inscribes for Scott very affectionately. So that idea of them being at odds and us, the readers of further generations, having to choose either Fitzgerald or Hemingway, I think that's, that's sort of a red herring. We can have both Fitzgerald and Hemingway. And Thomas Wolfe and Ringlard. We can have them all. Dorothy Parker, bring them all in.
1: I think you do a great job of that. And another writer you bring in very well is Zelda.
0: Zelda, what a wonderful writer. I mean it'cause letters are beautiful. One of the pleasures of doing the book was rereading not just all of Scott's stuff, but reading her stuff. Because she's got this, this lovely, lovely voice, um, a really marvelous sense of metaphor, her figurative language is gorgeous. Um and there's a there's a lovely uh, article that's that's included in the crack up. It's called Show Mister and Mrs. F to Room. Two thirty-five or something like that, in which, I and mean, I think the whole thing's really written by Zelda. It says it's written by both, but it really feels like it's written by Zelda. In which she reminisces about all the different places and all the different travels, all the places they stayed during their travels throughout their married life together. And just, just wonderful.
1: Talk about um, like going through the letters and bringing in the excerpts, and and because that's a uh, that's a pacing issue for you. And I think you do a good job of pacing that and bringing those in. And they add, they, to do the right amount and not too much. And
0: Why? Because they're separated, you mm-hmm. know, and with Zelda in a Highland hospital and Scotty up in Connecticut and, and, uh, Scott way out in Hollywood, they're writing letters all the time to each other. And this is one way I kept sort of track of, you know, where they were and what they were thinking and, and how they were feeling. Um, and I knew that I wanted to get some of that, that intimacy in there, that first person intimacy that only a private letter can bring in, because I wanted to break up that surface of the third person authorial, which I have. So every once in a while, I will, I will have A letter or an excerpt from a letter, but those excerpts are made up. I made those completely up. All right. Um, I use I use their tone and I use some of the vocabulary they use in their letters, but they are just crafted by you. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to pay for the (laughs) (laughs) for the right. I didn't know if I could get the rights, uh, or I knew that I couldn't afford them. Um, So I just sort of made them up. And now again, that was another great great pleasure is getting into their voice for just a small bit of time. I didn't want to do it too much cuz it's very hard to do. Um but I knew I wanted to to break it up a little bit. Well, it rings true. <laughs> well, and also in and having and the, the great irony of that is, you know, having Scotty talking to Scott about Zelda uh-huh. uh, and then having Scott talking to Zelda about Scotty and you know that you know that, that that kind of um the game of post office the families play. <laughs> well, also
1: too um that you get a great chance to, um, I guess, externalize them. So when they're writing, at they're kind of stepping outside of themselves and creating themselves in print, and that gives us a, you know, a sense of
0: how they want to appear to
1: one another and to
0: others as well. Certainly, when Scott's writing to Scotty, there's, there's a lot of that. I think mm. you know, here's here's the proper way to live life. But I, I hope that the letters between Scott and Zelda are a little more the word for it, naked, uh-huh. I think.
1: That brings us back to his new paramour. So I'd like you to talk about creating her. And, and one of the things I think that's interesting about her is how beautiful she is and how you you play with that in the narrative.
0: Well, she is a, a very, very beautiful woman cause sort of a bombshell mm-hmm. uh, for the time. And Scott himself, very, very handsome man still uh, even in his 40s then. And they made they made a very good-looking couple there, very professional-looking, you know. For Hollywood, you know, they fit, you know. Um, and, and and working with that, knowing that she's beside the Hollywood stars all the time. She has this level of beauty and coolness that she has to sort of hang on to. Um, and they also can't talk about their relationship. It, it can't be made public because then it would be somehow attacked in the gossip column. So there's a little extra fun with that there. Um, it, it's it's difficult, I think, to talk about creating a character like that. I mean, it's, it's all through Scott's eyes. And, mm-hmm. and Scott is so good at drawing female characters. That's one reason why they brought him out to Hollywood, to write for his female characters. But I looked at the way that he, he talked about, say, Nicole Diver mm-hmm. in Tender is the Night. I looked at the way that he writes about Kathleen through Star's Eyes in The Last Tycoon, and I try to sort of follow that. What is what is Scott's ideal woman like? Because he has kind of rose-colored glasses a little bit. He's an older guy, and, and she's a younger woman, so there's a little bit of that there. Not as much as Hemingway, of course, later on. Um But I I just try to keep that in mind, that that his is an idealized view. And I think he tries to keep that in mind, too, but he he can't. He kind of falls for her and falls for her and falls for her. And he falls pretty hard. Um, It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a great thing to have a character who has fallen in love and is kind of helpless before his love there.
1: He, it's sweet, and, and, but in a way that's never cloying. It always just feels like really honest and refreshing. He's, it, it's fun to, to read around. I mean, that's one of the great pleasures of this book. No matter who scots around, you're having a good time as a
0: reader, and that's important. <laughs> well, part of, part of that is the glamour. Part of that is the romance. Um, and, and again, part of it is his sensibility, too. Mm-hmm. Um, he he knows what it is to be in love, and and he wants to be in love, and he's in this place that's you know it's it's a paradise, you know it, it's it's a garden, you know, and and here is the woman that sort of has has brought him back to life. I, I really think that in those last few years he he regained himself, he regained that sense of of beauty and his idea that he talks about with, with um, Gatsby, that willingness, mm-hmm. that very American willingness to give himself to the world. I think he finds that again. I think he, he rises from that that absolute zero after the crack-up and, and becomes uh, not just a great author again, and I think he does. I think in Last Tycoon he becomes the great author that, that Scott Fitzgerald could be. But I think he also becomes a, a much, much better person, I think
1: he He's such an American writer, and part of that is the enormous economic complexity that he embodied. He started out on the wrong side of the tracks, he worked, gravelled, grappled his way to the top to the ultra stardom, fell back down again every time we see him in this book. he essentially encompasses all of the American economic experience in one man. Well, he
0: knows money. He knows he knows how easy money can come, and he knows how hard it is to get money. He understands work. And that's that's one thing that, that makes him kind of a typical uh, character of mine is he's going to work. Mm-hmm. He's going to work. That's the only thing that's going to save him is, is his work ethic. And so he's going to hit it every day and hit it every day because he knows it's not always going to be there. Get it while you can, right? And
1: I think you do a great job of – as a writer, pacing that work for us as readers. And, and we, we get into seeing him work like, as you mentioned earlier, seeing him get up early in the morning, seeing him try so hard to bring some quality to the movies and just have it like ground up like
0: a, a, into sausage. And, I mean, and the stories at the time that he's writing, um, he's trying to sell them and he's getting paid peanuts for them. And after a while, his agent's like, well, no one, no one really wants these stories anymore. And he's like, but they're good, you know. I'm writing, you know. He, he has to keep believing in his work, and, and he always does. But it seems no one else does, it, and that's he, hard. And in, in the end, he has to part ways with his agent. Mm-hmm. And his agent of his, his entire career was with Harold Ober, and all of a sudden, he's sort of, you know, in a way, out on the street.
1: And yet, we, in retrospect, know that those were some of among his best work.
0: Well, that that's some of what I call the Mozart factor. Mm-hmm. That is, we look back and we see this guy, and he's writing away, and now we know he's a genius, but at the time, no one really cares. And then he dies young. And so it is, I mean, that is kind of a, you know, a ready-made tragedy in a way.
1: And, well, I again, that's one of the pleasures of this book is to see the tragedy play out. We know it's going to happen, but there's some kind of really, I think, almost perverse American pleasure in seeing something bad happen, so long as the people who to whom it's happening are revealed to have
0: a good solid American character and that's Scott Fitzgerald all around I think so I think so and that's why he is he's such an, such an American person um, that idea of being able to change that idea of um, you're worth what your work is worth um, no, he was, just, he was just a pleasure to work with. I think, and I you know I kind of really missed him and that that world and Zelda and Scotty and you know I, I kind of missed all of them after I finished the book. I,
1: and uh, that's another aspect too of this book is the job you do of world building is phenomenal from the first paragraph to the final word. We every time we read this book, we are there with him, no matter where he is in that time and place. And I think this has a lot to do with your prose, which is. Consistently beautiful and very sparse. Is this something that pours off the tip of your pen?
0: No, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, you're always sort of chopping away and chipping away at it. But I, I think I use a longer line in this particular book, and I think mm-hmm. it's a little more lush mm-hmm. uh, because I'm, I'm also working because I'm working with his sensibility. Sure, I can work with a little higher tone. I think in the diction, so there's there's more figurative language in there, and also the, I, I wanted to get a lot of beauty into the book because. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a beautiful time and play again, glamour. There's a lot of glamour, there's a lot of romance and I I I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss that. Right. Um I you know, it's I knew that that coming in I, I would have to represent Fitzgerald and the ability that he has to evoke. And he's one of the most beautiful and most evocative of American writers. And even though I'm not using his actual language I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit of that in there and there, there has to be some sort of a limpid quality to it a lucent quality to it it's got to be it's got to be right it's got to be kind of gorgeous there without being purple I think
1: we see this as I read this I saw this as just a perfectly made movie from that time <laughs> that's how I experienced it I just thought wow
0: <laughs> well good Good. I hope so. I mean, one, one of the great delights I took was just being on the lot, mm-hmm. being on the MGM lot and going back and looking at all the all the photos they have of, of how big that the place was, the studio and the back lot. And he's on the lot while they're making The Wizard of Oz. You know, he ends up working on Gone with the Wind. So he's there at sort of just the right time. The people that he's passing in the street every day are the very young Elizabeth Taylor. You know, and Mickey Rooney and, you know, Joan Crawford and Ginger Rogers. This was the center of American movie making, and here is a guy that can appreciate it. And I think, too, that's nice that we can appreciate
1: him because he's coming at it from a, a... more our level. He's been kind of reduced down more to our level. He's a working stiff there, essentially. Yeah,
0: yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a contract guy. He's a day, a day player in a way. Um, and, and again, the, the fish out of water. And being that fish out of water, I can, I can take the reader through all the firsts. Here's his first day on the lot. Here's the first time that he's in the building where he's going to be working. On that same hallway in the building where he's working are Dorothy Parker, Aldous Huxley, James M. Cain. <laughs> right on, on the same hallway, and he's the junior guy. He's he's the schlub Fitzgerald, there. And I didn't even have room to put in James M. Kane in the book. I mean, there, there's just so many people involved, so many sort of famous people that I said I'm just gonna have to limit, you know, the, the number of people, like number of walk-ons I can have because it would just be way too distracting.
1: When you were creating this book, did you just surround yourself with the kind of artwork and photographs of, of the place and time?
0: Um, photos, especially of, of Zelda. Because Zelda, I think, was always on his mind, mm-hmm. no matter where he was. And so I, there was a lot of photos from Zelda uh, from the early, from the teens and the early 20s, the Zelda that he fell in love with, the Zelda that he, he laments, the Zelda that he wishes he had back. So I always sort of kept them sort of above me, so they're always sort of hovering there. <laughs> um, but, all, but also I, I surrounded myself with the, uh, the writing of the time.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I
0: had to look back to a Los Angeles that is pretty much gone now, I mean, the Los Angeles of 1937 is so, so different from what it is now that I looked back at the people that wrote about that time, uh, John Fonte, of course, um, Raymond Chandler, who mm-hmm. sort of looked at all his work, especially the Santa Monica stuff, um, Horace McCoy in They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which is a great, great novel, and, of course, Nathaniel West in The Day of the Locust and uh, The Last Tycoon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I must have reread The Last Tycoon eight or nine times. You know, and just loved it more and more and more every time I went through it. I think it's a really underread book. It's, it's, it's a Fitzgerald book that we should read a lot more. Also, Tender is the Night. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tender is the Night is just a beautiful portrait of, of a man sort of making the wrong choices and being beat down by life um, and, and falling out of love with the world in the end. And I sort of kept that in mind while I was writing this book. Is there a chance that this book would be
1: made into a movie?
0: Well, you never know. <laughs> I'm hopeful, of course. I mean, there, there's some uh, blog, some website has already cast it. Oh, which really? Which I thought was really, really funny. Um, and they chose, of, cl- of course, because we conflate uh, Fitzgerald with Gatsby. Uh-huh. Of course, they did the same thing, and they said DiCaprio should be playing him. And I thought, well, I don't know. I, I, I think more of the of Ray Fiennes. I think Rafe Fiennes can do the the sort of Gatsby or not Gatsby, the Gatsby, the Fitzgerald in poor health, mm-hmm. the more neurasthenic. Uh, Fitzgerald. Um, and they chose Reese Witherspoon for Zelda and Michelle Williams for Sheila, I think. Whereas I would say Michelle Williams would make a great Zelda, because mm-hmm. I think Michelle Williams is fearless and great. And I think that Kate Winslet would make a really good Sheila. You'd have to play her a little bit younger, but still. I think
1: they can. Well,
0: I <laughs> look forward to that. Well, yeah. Yeah, we'll see.
1: Oh, where are you now? I, are you in another planet, another time, another place?
0: I'm finishing up a novel that's set in Jerusalem in 1946. Um, it's it's about the sort of the combined Jewish underground operations against the British mandate at the time. So it's that's about, a fascinating time. Oh, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a really I, volatile oh, uh, yeah. era, and 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 the events are kind of wild and the people
1: who are involved in that i mean they invented terrorism <laughs> well they didn't they certainly didn't invent it
0: and in fact a lot of it is about how how do these people who have survived the camps mm-hmm. the german camps and the russian camps as well and then the transit camps how do they turn around and within months uh, begin to use violence as a political tool mm. and It's a
1: fascinating story.
0: Yeah, well, it's a very, very, I mean, beyond the political aspect, it's a very human story, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the the survivors of violence often then use violence on others there. Um, So I I think I learned a lot in it. And for that, I've been reading a lot of Graham Greene and Robert Stone and and Dennis Johnson um, and just looking at, again, political violence and the, the uses of it, the repercussions of it. Um, and the toll that it takes on the soul.
1: I've been speaking with Stuart Onan. His new novel is West of Sunset. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Oh, thanks, Rick.